Today's sermon text is from Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying, He ascended. What does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is head, who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And this is God's word. Good morning, everybody. Uh, got a couple of... Um, stories to start off with today um, that I think will really be helpful in painting a picture of what I want to achieve, what I would like to see our church grow into. Um, I was standing up here talking to our worship team right before service started and uh, wishing that I had some Chick-fil-A sauce and sort of listening and not listening. And... um, (laughs) And as I was talking to them, um, a gentleman walked down the aisle toward me. And he was staring at me. And it was, it was a little awkward. And uh, he just walked up and he was just going like this, just staring at me. And then he stopped and just stood there. And I looked at him and I thought, okay, where are we going? And um, um, then it dawned on me who this man was, a man that I have not seen in 28 years. Uh, and he was my youth pastor. And have you ever seen Ratatouille? It's one of my favorite movies of all time. I love Ratatouille. Anybody love Ratatouille as much as I love Ratatouille? Come on, raise your hand in the air. Wave it like you just don't care. Show us how, how much you love Ratatouille. Um, but there's a part at the end of Ratatouille. It's, I mean, it should have been Oscar. It should have been an Oscar winner, I'm certain. But um, there's this part at the end of Ratatouille where uh, this food critic is going to this restaurant to 
uh, his plan is to obliterate this restaurant with his criticism. He, he's ready to write an article in the paper, in the, in the, Par- in the Paris Gazette or whatever it's called the next day, uh, about what he learned about how poor this restaurant is that once used to be this glorious restaurant that has lost its way. And so he goes there, and his name is Anton Ego. And Anton Ego, he looks like Dracula, the way they draw him in, in the movie. And so he walks into this restaurant. He's tall. He's lumbering. He's intimidating, and he's severe. And, um, and he sits down, and the waiter nervously, they know he's coming. They know Anton Ego is coming to eat our food tonight. And so they come, and they walk up to the table, and the waiter says, so what would you like? And he says, perspective. How about, a, how about fresh perspective or something like that? And the, wait, the waiter is totally off kilter. And he's, he doesn't know how to respond to that. And so he just sort of sheepishly skulks away back into the kitchen. The doors, both the doors hit him in the back. And he's standing there and breaking a sweat. And he says, and everybody says, what does he want? And he's like, a perspective. And so nobody knows what to do. And then, and this is where the movie gets really realistic. Um, then all of these rats make food. Um, real rats. These, but these rats aren't just any rats. These rats are under the direction of a great chef rat who helps them to cultivate this meal. And they serve him this meal. And so they, they bring him this meal and they lay in front of him on the table a, an entree. And the entree is ratatouille. I had no idea what ratatouille was before I watched that movie. I still don't know what it is. It looked like a stack of pepperoni or something. I don't know. But um, uh, So they lay this meal in front of him, and he takes a bite, expecting it to totally underwhelm him. And what happens is he is transported back to his childhood in the French countryside when his mom, with her loving eyes and his innocent face, she serves him a plate of ratatouille, and it changes him. It is a transcendent meal, and the next day he writes his critique of the restaurant. It was glowing. He lost all credibility because he talked about how a rat made him the best meal that he's ever eaten in his entire life, and that's sort of how the movie ended. But um, it's a great moral. I just don't know what it is yet. But um, So I'm standing there, and I look at my youth pastor who walks up, who when I was, the last time I laid eyes on him, I must have been 15 or 16 years old, and... I was just filled with gratitude. I was filled with so much gratitude. Um, I hugged him. I hugged him twice, and I hugged him three times. And I said, Mom, Dad, look, he's, he's, Scott's here. And, and they walked down the aisle after, after service, and they, they served him communion that, uh, just in, in our first service today. And, and um, I'm still sort of happy, so gl- I'm really ha- thankful for that. And the reason I'm thankful is because um, when he came into my life, that was the most broken that I was to this day the most broken that I've ever been. Um, I was the victim of severe bullying in middle school, which really contorted my soul and my um, everything about me. And it caused me to mutate into a mean, sometimes vicious, and really ugly person. And my whole philosophy of life was to hurt you before you hurt me. And God, by His grace allowed Scott to enter into my life, who I'll admit I was difficult to deal with. And, but Scott showed me something about Jesus that I had rarely seen before, and that was that he just loved me. He just loved me, and he put up with me. And I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for that. It was through a person that God showed me how much he loved me and how, much, how valuable I was and that I was worth loving. 
um, that made a huge impact on me. It didn't change me when I was 15 or 16, but it was a seed that was planted. And I'll never forget, for years I've thought of him often and thought, man, I really thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for showing me that I was worth loving. Um, then I got a call, and like my, my emotions are just all over the place today. If, I don't know which service we're going to post. If it was the first service, then it's crazy. But um, uh, I was all over the place. And um, yesterday morning, I, I got up and saw a text from a friend of mine um, who told me to call him as soon as I could. I called him. And a really good friend of mine, uh, his name's Scott Benjamin, he pastors Refuge Church in Lakeland. Um, the night before... He and his family were at a cheer competition in Orlando, and uh, he and his wife, Jerry, were there with their kids. Their kids are me and Becky's kids' ages, and so this hits close to home. And Jerry was sitting at dinner and began to complain of feeling dizzy and like she might pass out. She passed out. She wouldn't come to, and so they rushed her to the emergency room where the doctors, after evaluating her, found a large tumor in her brain, and she had an aneurysm. And um, last night she passed away. I mean, this family went from enjoying each other at dinner at a cheer competition to being totally and completely devastated. And I'm just... um, I'm really brokenhearted over that today. Um, I love Scott. He is, uh, he's not a, a close, close friend. I don't want to embellish this, but I do know him well. And we have had many moments together over the years where intimate moments and groups of pastors where we shared our hearts. And he's just, uh, he's just the kindest guy you could ever meet. I mean, this guy makes me look like I don't even belong in the pulpit. He is such a good pastor. He is such an amazing shepherd. And, um, and I mean that. He is an incredible shepherd. And uh, we prayed for him the first service. And um, I just want to give a brief prayer again and ask God to bless them as their kids uh, cope with their grief, fresh, fresh, searing, painful grief uh, with the death of their mother. Um, it hits really close to home for me personally. Their kids are our kids' ages. And I'm trying to imagine what it would be like if, if my wife, if this happened to her and the despair that we would feel. So, um, Jesus... I thank you for Scott. He's a good man. He's a godly man, a righteous man. And I love him. And I know that Scott, I've been around he and Jerry, and I know he loved her dearly. She was his delight. And I know those kids... They are suffering so much right now, as is Scott. And Jesus, I feel helpless even praying for them. But I pray that you would give them hope. I pray that you would remind them of a resurrection that every believer will experience. And I pray that through the waves of grief and anger and shock and numbness and fury and withdrawal 
things that grieving people go through, that at the center of their lives, there would be this quiet force, the goodness and the sovereignty and the mercy of God. I thank you for that, Jesus. And I pray your blessings on them. I pray your blessings on Refuge Church this morning as they gather to worship and lament the passing of one of their mentors. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, my friend Chuck, who is a, uh, he's, one, he's actually one of our church's overseers. Um, we have three overseers. A couple of folks have asked me, since we're a non-denominational church, what accountability we have. And there are three men that we look to. One is a guy named uh, Elliot Grudem, who is a pastor at Vintage Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, he also leads an organization called Leaders Collective that uh, did some training with me. Um, another man is Paul Whaley, a pastor in Huntsville, Alabama, at Summit Crossing Church. And then another man is... Um, Chuck Gashend, who was a church planter uh, in eastern Arkansas. And uh, we have it written in our bylaws that if there's ever an impasse that we as an elder group, eldership meet, uh, come to, that we can't get past, or if I'm misbehaving so badly that they need to go over my head, then uh, they can go to these guys. And when these guys are appealed to, then they have total authority over our church, total authority. I lose my power at that point, and so do our elders. And so we feel like it's a good, it's a good accountability measure. And, uh, and one, frankly, that even some denominational churches don't have. But, um, but Chuck is a dear brother, and he's the one that alerted me to this yesterday morning, and uh, he is the one leading their service today. And so they gathered today, and they didn't sing, and they, um, they lamented together over the passing of this dear, dear woman. I was thinking about um, our upcoming series in the Book of Lamentations ha- starting in a couple of weeks. And I'm still looking at Lamentations, and I'm kind of going like this, like, what, what do I do with this? You know, um, I've slotted six weeks in this and I'm trying to figure out my first sermon. And uh, because it's just straight poetry, it's grieving, sad poetry. And it's interesting because in Lamentations, the resolve isn't at the end of the book. The resolve is in the middle of the book. It's like God is saying, it starts off in grief, the book ends in grief, I'm in the center. And in the center of that book is Jeremiah, who we think wrote Lamentations, reminding us that God's mercies are new every morning. Great, great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. And so I don't know if this is going to be a good series at all or helpful at all. I hope it is. But I know that my heart needs it, and I believe that our church needs it because I think that the Western church has been inoculated from being able to grieve and feel sadness, and feel anger, and just coexist with unresolved pain and suffering. And what's insane to me is that you, we, have a book of the, we have a Bible that doesn't skirt those issues. God calls us into the uncertainness and the mystery of suffering and pain. And he doesn't give us clean answers and easy answers and answers that satisfy us intellectually, but he does give us a promise that he's with us. He's with us. And I've come to believe that Jesus is real, that he's the son of God, and that there is a creator. And I really, really, really want his presence in my life. And all I can say is that in times like this, when I see my friend Scott, and I, see, and I hear about the story of Scott Benjamin, um, 
it makes me long for the presence of God in a way that I don't when things are just fine, things are good. I'm saying all this because our what we want more than anything at our church is for you to have this. We want you to be so connected in the body of Christ. And when I say the body of Christ, I don't mean just the universal church of believers all over the earth. I'm talking about believers who have chosen to come together at a local place, a local church, where we come under a a specific invisible leadership team who doesn't want to control you but simply train you and coach you in the life of godliness. People who have committed to a tangible local church, not just some sort of a... um, a shapeless, nameless, faceless gathering at a pub or a coffee shop, but something, and that's fine, but, but people who are committed together to come together, and I'm able to know I am your brother, you are my sister, you are my brother, we are going to fight for our relationship together. Um, I had a person ask me recently, he said, I, you know, I've not joined the church, he said, I'm, and he said, kind of said it kind of in a funny way, he said, I'm giving money, so that's enough, right? And I'm like, well, I'm glad you're giving money, that's helpful, I can, you know, pay our staff with that money, but... But the problem is, is that I know there's not a verse in the Bible about membership. I know that. But, you know, when I, if I lived in Corinth 2,000 years ago and I got mad at the pastor at Corinth, I couldn't go down to the Methodist church down the street. There wasn't another Methodist church down the street. It was just the church at Corinth. And so now I like to know as an, as an elder, as a pastor in a church, who I am responsible for, who I'm committed to. And, and, and I'm committed to people who are committed to this church as an eldership. And so I can look at myself in the mirror and know in my conscience that um, I have a responsibility to care for people who have committed to this local church. I'm not trying to coerce anybody into joining our church. I'm really not. But I do think that if you're a believer, you should be a member of a local church and be committed there and and work really, really hard to uh, get through the hard times, rejoice in the good times, and put down deep, deep roots. Deep roots. Um, In putting down roots, here's what I don't want to happen to you. This is what I don't want to happen because we're spending the last, you know, the last several weeks talking about our vision for you, for our church. And our church is you. What do we want for you? Here's what we don't want to happen to you. That you come to our Sunday morning services and after five or seven or ten or twelve or fifteen years of being a member in our church, nobody knows you. When you're gone, you're not missed. When you're here, you're not noticed. We want you that when you are not with us, for a lot of people to wonder, where are you? What's going on? We want you to feel deep sadness when one of your brothers and sisters faces the tragedies of this life. We want you to feel that. We don't want this to be just a gathering place, sort of like a conference or teaching center, where we can come and meet our individualistic, consumeristic needs But we want you to understand who you are in Jesus. And you are called to be part of a body of believers. And when, like Paul says to the Corinthians, when one of you is hurting, we are all hurting. When one of you is rejoicing, we are all rejoicing. I want to genuinely feel excited about the victories in your life because I know you. I know I can't know all of you, not even most of you. But I want people in your life, in your local church, that when you're hurting, they are sad. They are also sharing your dismay. 
And they're also asking the first question that the writer of Lamentation asks. How? Why? What is going on, God? Are you really good? Can we really trust you? I want this church to be the kind of place where we can be together in those hard questions. I think you want this too. I do. It's scary. Because it requires us to go from being Sunday morning auditors of sermons to being intentional and leaning into community and being with people that hurt to be with sometimes. Being with people that you love to be with. Learning to walk as the church. And this is what Paul says in first in Ephesians chapter 4. Now just a quick reference to last week. Quick review. Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. And that word you is plural. You. He's talking to the church. He's not talking to individuals. He's not saying, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you were called. So go home, read your Bible, listen to teaching, you know, uh, uh, podcasts, uh, listen to worship music, get your head screwed on straight, uh, don't sin. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying, I want you to walk worthy of the calling to which you were called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. These things can't be done without one another's. You don't, how, how do you, how do we grow in patience and humility if we're not with people? How? It's easy to believe that I'm generally a pretty patient person. Get married and you'll see that you're not. I thought I, I thought I had my stuff together. And then 21 years ago, I said I do at an altar and then I realized really quickly, whoa, when my wife is crying because of how stupid I am um, and how not enduring that I am in love and how impatient and selfish and narcissistic I am, I realized really quickly, wow, I'm not as patient and gentle and humble as I thought I was. You can only have this realization in community. You can never see that when you're by yourself. So you might get real excited about your Bible devotionals, and I'm glad, do your Bible devotionals. Study God's Word. By all means, study God's Word. Pray and seek God's face. But the, everything about our church, when you cut us, we bleed community. I was advised by a pastor, a well-meaning pastor once. He said, man, when you get in that room, and we just, we've just been renting this facility for the last year. So today is our one-year anniversary at this building. And for the last year we've been here, and it's been a great place for us. It's been, it's been wonderful. It feels like home. Pray that God's going to give it to us somehow, because we sure can't afford it. And um, <laughs> so, uh, prime real estate, man. I think they could sell the grass here for more than we can afford. So, uh, um, But we, God's given it. God's allowing us to meet here, and it's a wonderful place. And we're praying that this will be our home long term. Um, why did I even bring that up? Uh, I have no idea. Uh, let's see, what was I saying? Anybody remember what I was saying? Say that again. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Colin. And, um, so I was, he, so a friend of mine told me, he said, when you get on there, he said, you turn off all those lights. He said, you black out those windows and you put a spotlight on you so that when people come to church, they can focus on you and y'all can grow this thing and yada, yada, yada. And I was like, uh, everything in me does not want that. I do not want that. I don't want that. 
This is not about me. I am not the center of the church. The reason we have the lights on and the blinds open is because that's a, there's a theological reason behind that. We are a church body. We are together. We belong with one another. It's a theological reason. You might say, wow, Chris, that's kind of intense. You know, blinds, really? Yes. We want you to see each other. I want you to feel each other's presence, not just Jesus' presence in a black room. I want you to feel each other's presence when we're together. I want us to remember every time we gather that we're not going to a talk, a TED talk, that we are going to a body of, of disciples, a body of believers. That's what I want. And I want people who aren't compelled yet to believe that Jesus is legit and that the faith is real and that God loves them and God is calling them. I want non-believing people to come here and see you and see us and see us how we love one another and serve one another and be compelled to listen to the gospel because of that. I want people seeing us. That's, there's a theological reason for this. There's a theological reason for this. Um, we want you to experience the body of Christ in a way that you are shaped to become a more and more and more patient, gentle, loving, loving person who fights for the unity of the Spirit with the body of Jesus. This is what's interesting. As you go down to uh, chapter 4, in, in chapter 4, I mentioned this last week, Paul says this, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Whoa! So when Paul talks about us growing up, and he uses the imagery of an adult person, in his mind, the characteristics of an adult church, an adult church, a local church that is adult, that is mature, is not just a bunch of passion during praise and worship. It's not an eagerness to learn and take notes during the sermon. Those are all good things, and I hope they happen. I love watching you guys lean forward and take notes when I'm talking. That just makes me feel so good and just pumps my ego up. You know, it makes me feel like I'm saying something important and provocative and good, you know, but... A mature body of believers, a mature local church, is a church that is excelling in humility and gentleness and patience and enduring love and in the unity of the Spirit. Not just some generic unity, but the unity of the Spirit, where we as followers of Jesus are all learning a fluency in the Holy Spirit together, a sensitivity and tenderness to God, growing and learning how to hear Him and perceive His movements in our lives and follow those impulses that may lie deep inside of us, but where the Holy Spirit is calling us to do something beyond what we are, beyond our brokenness and expressing love, gentleness, care, service. This is what we're going for. This is the church that we dream of being. This is our dream. So he wants us to grow up. And then he says this. Here's how it's to happen. Look at verse 15. Like the first service, I'm going to be all over the place in this one. Uh, the first service, I was so emotional and just shot from the hip, and I'm still trying to figure out how to preach this sermon. And I am just decided to go ahead and just leave it and follow my instincts here. But... Um, uh, verse, verse 15, rather, 
rather than being carried around by, carried about and pushed around and, pushed around and bullied by every uh, wave of doctrine and deceitful human schemes, being a rooted person. And here's what a rooted person looks like in verse 15. Rather speaking the truth in love. Notice he didn't say study the Bible really hard. He wants us to study scripture, of course. That's why he's writing these words. Study these words. Interact with these words. Learn to love these words. Intake these words. But he's saying here that in order to grow as a mature body, as a mature church, and again, remind me, my friends, what does a mature local church look like again? What are some of those virtues? Patience. Enduring love, humility, gentleness, that's exactly right. In order to grow in that, he says, there is a practice that needs to be common in our church. Speaking the truth in love. And I would argue by implication, hearing the truth in love. It takes humility to hear the truth. I'll never forget when I was on a youth trip, when I was probably 17 years old, I was a, uh, quote, mentor on this trip, which was something, a title that was easily earned and um, uh, wasn't very assessed very well. I had no, uh, it, you know, no business being a mentor, but I was. And I was on this trip, and we were out in the Four Corners region and uh, out west. And I remember having this confrontation with one of the kids in the youth group who just, I could not take this kid. And... Um, and, you know, one of these big guys who was just a knucklehead and, and, and I'm, I'm sitting there trying to rationalize why I went off on him, but it was, there was no excuse. And, and I, I lost my cool with this guy and I said some things I shouldn't have said. I was really severe. And there was a guy that was one of our leaders who came up to me and pulled me aside later and said, uh, Chris, I saw how you handled that situation. And I want you to know, I lost a lot of respect for you today. I was like, ooh, man, that really hurt. And, man, it was hard to take, and I really wanted to retaliate. And then I thought, one, this guy's a lot bigger than me. And then, two, um, I need to hear this. I need to hear this. I need to humble myself and hear this because I don't like the way I acted either. I felt really ashamed. And then when he called me out, and he did it kindly, he wasn't abusive or, or harshly critical, but the words themselves just hurt. They hurt. I wish I could say that every time somebody corrected me, I reacted that way. I, I haven't. Um, but to speak the truth in love by implication means we have to hear the truth in love. I advised our first service to do this, and I'm going to say the same thing to you because this is something that I do practice in my life. Um, I think that we live in such a broken, and, and no, I don't mean this pejoratively, in such an insecure and self-conscious world that many of us, the thought of someone critiquing us um, may bring out some PTSD from past relationships where we've been hurt and wounded. Uh, most people, I think, don't know what it's like for someone to come and speak the truth to them in love. They don't know what it's like. And so it's going to take some humility to admit, okay, that just because I've never experienced that doesn't mean it's not possible. And I'm going to have to do the hard work of when somebody does speak into my life that I don't create this narrative in my mind where I'm now looking at that person as though they have evil intentions and they're mean-spirited and they have, they're full of malice toward me, but rather, regardless of their motives, to hear the truth, to hear it. And my advice is to do this. Every one of us should be able to point our finger at several people in our lives 
hopefully in our local church, where we can say, you know what, that person I really respect. I've watched that person live. That person is godly. That person is measured. That person is restrained. That person is a person who could show me something about following Jesus. There are a lot of people like that in our church. And we should be, I think one of the ways that we know that we're on the right track in doing church in a healthy way is if we can think of immediately several people in our life in this local church that we can go, you know what, they match that criteria. And here's what I want to challenge you to do. Go to those people and say, I am giving you carte blanche permission to speak the truth to me in love. It doesn't matter what it is. You can speak into my life about how I treat my wife or my husband. You can talk to me about how I parent my kids. That's a big pride issue for a lot of people. You do it to parent my kids. You know, I'm like, well, I love your kids too. I want to see them grow up in a good home and, you know, and give me a break. You know, I'm just, it's hard. It's really hard. There's a lot of pride, a lot of stubbornness in our hearts. And I think we need to be proactive at diffusing that pride and that stubbornness by going to people, godly people, and just saying, hey, I extend to you permission at any time to speak into my life. Speak into me. Correct me in love. I told the first service, um, I mean, no offense by saying this, but I have low expectations that that's going to happen. And I hope you'll change my heart and my mind in that regard. We have been shaped by an evangelical church thing that causes us to come audit sermons and hope that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, will come in a way that will just change me and I'll, I'll, leave, I'll, I'll, leave, I'll leave never the same. And it just doesn't work that way. We are called to obedience. We're called to allow the Holy Spirit to shape our hearts and lives. This is what we want for your life. This is what we want for you. If, if you are a member here or are, con- or, or thinking of membership here, this is what our vision is for your life, is that you would be connected to people who love you. People who, when you look at them, you can feel the same emotion that I felt when I saw my old youth pastor, Scott, and be filled with gratitude that God took those people, beautiful people, and put them in your life. And we also want you to be so connected with one another that when one of us here experiences um, the terror of grief and the storm of loss, that we also feel the same loss and the same grief. And we are compelled to be with them. Compelled. I have to be with them. They cannot do this alone. And a lot of churches, because so many people don't know one another, when they're called to do that, it's a burden. Go visit so-and-so in the hospital. I have no clue who they are. But when we really know one another, that is not a burden. That is not a burden. 10 o'clock last Sunday night, I received a call from a family who received devastating news. I was ready to go to bed. I was reading a good book. I had my wonderful pajamas on. I was ready. Food Network was going. It was perfect. You know, Pioneer Woman, whatever, whatever I was watching. Uh, actually, I don't watch that. Only Becky watches that stuff. And, um, and I got the call. And there wasn't a question in my heart. This is a family that I love. We're connected to them. I know I can't be connected to everyone here. I know I can't. 
My priority is to be connected to our leaders. And hopefully by leading and shaping our leaders, you can be connected to our leaders and each other in a way that you also feel that same compulsion. When someone among us is hurting, you rush to them. This is our vision for you. And so I realize that what I'm, what I'm selling today, some people aren't mine. I know we want consumer, feed me, fix me, give me three points on how to get better, how to fix this in my life. I don't mean to be, well, I'm, I, that's a, I think that's an honest assessment. And uh, that's, that's not what we're selling here. We want you to be known. And we want you to know one another. And that invites messiness. It invites a lack of control because it's hard. Um, I've outpreached my text here, but I do want to... Uh, I spent a significant amount of time last week teasing this out. And I do want to mention something to you in closing today um, that we're going to be doing with our community groups. Um, the call to unity and to love one another and to be connected to one another is not a pragmat is our pragmatic approach to doing church well. This is deep conviction for us. If you study Ephesians chapter 4, particularly verses 1 through 16, I don't know how you can read it and walk away with any other vision of the church except to be deeply connected with brothers and sisters. I don't know how to do that. I don't know how you can do that. And so this is influencing the way that we are doing community groups. This is not a community group sermon. I'm not trying to sell you on community groups. But community groups are the backbone of our church. And I want to tell you about something that we're rolling out. It's not going to happen until next, uh, uh, halfway through this month, just letting our leaders know about this. And we probably won't roll it out until March. But this is what we're doing. We want to see Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16, unleashed in our church. Ephesians 4 describes a body of believers that have been trained by pastors to love one another and serve one another really, really fluently. We want to see that happen in our church. We, do, we think that the, the common vi, uh, view of church is this, that the pastors are the star wide receivers and the star quarterbacks and the star running backs, and the church is in the bleachers watching us. And I don't think Ephesians 4 says that. Ephesians 4 gives us a vision that if you'll allow me, since it's Super Bowl Sunday, that looks more like this. The pastors and the leaders are the referees. And the people that are on the field are the saints, all believers. You are the star wide receivers. You are the star running backs. You are the star quarterbacks. And by star, I just mean valuable. I don't mean, you know, we're going to start calling you minister and hand you a title. Um, but there are also people who are linemen and offensive linemen who do the grunt work. This is what the church is. This is what we're going for. And so we want to see the people of God unleashed. And we don't want the leaders of our church to be um, a glass ceiling over our people. And so here's what we're going to be doing. And I want to talk more about this soon. We're going to be training our leaders on this. We are going to begin allowing anyone who is a member of our church in good standing to lead a community group. Anyone. Our goal is that you be able to do life on a regular basis with people that you enjoy being with. I don't see any sense in me taking three couples, three families that really enjoy being together, and then breaking them up and putting them in different community groups or sticking them in this massive community group where nobody's ever going to know each other because there's just too many people there. 
And so our thought is, what if we say, hey, if you are a member in good standing at Renewal Church, in good standing, you can't be mad at me all the time, okay? Um, If you're a member in good standing at Renewal Church, if you are a member and you are reliable, meaning you won't cancel community group because you got invited to a party you wanted to go to that night, you know, or something like that. Um, uh, My kids have the sniffles, you know, like, are they really sick or are they just some sign of stuff going on here? You know, so I'm reliable community group gatherings. And then, um, are you going to be a hospitable person who is teachable? Will you allow us as the leaders of our church, as the leaders of this church to shape you and show you how to do community group? And here's what community group looks like from two weeks ago's sermon, four characteristics, Acts chapter two. Peter said, save yourself from this perverse generation. They came to Christ, they were baptized, and then they carried out four distinct practices. And those four practices by which they resisted being contorted into the image of this world and rather pursued the image of God, they did this instead. They got together and fellowshiped over the apostles' doctrine, the teaching of God's word. And you don't have to teach. We give bullet points and conversation starters on that stuff. It's simple. Anybody can do this. Two, fellowship. They ate a meal together. Three, they broke bread. And four, the Lord's Supper. And four, they prayed. That's it. That's it. That's all we're asking our community groups to do. That's it. To get together, to share a meal, to open your email inbox and see a message from Clarence Williams that has four or five bullet points about today's sermon and have conversation over that. And if somebody says something crazy, it's okay. You don't have to freak out. You ain't got to fix everything. Just let it go. Let it go. We'll fix it from the stage. And as we teach and preach God's word, be okay with messiness and get together with a minimum of three family units. That's it. And by family unit, I mean a single or somebody who's married and has kids. Three family units minimum. That's all you've got to have. Our goal isn't to grow that group. Our goal is is that you grow into, the full, into a measure of the fullness of stature of Christ. And what is that again? What does a mature church look like? Patience, humility, gentleness, enduring love, and the unity of the Spirit. This is what we're going for. But I do want to take you through, we're going to talk more about this in the coming days, but the vision is this, is that we believe every single one of you, according to Ephesians 4, has a gift of grace in your life. Every one of you does. And every one of you is called to be about living in the church in such a way that you speak the truth in love and that you do relationships together, that people are sharpened in their faith and they grow and mature in Christ. And so, again, we're just asking for people who are members in good standing, people who are reliable, and people who are teachable. Will you let us shape you? Will you let us shape you? And when you're with people, our bet is is that when you're with people that you really enjoy being with, you love to be with, you're not going to be tempted to cancel community group because, you know, for some frivolous reason. You're going to want to be together. And you're going to enjoy one another in the spirit, in the unity of the faith. God bless you, my friends.